Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict fight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode six, season one, and today I speak to historian, teacher and author Alex Clifford. Alex has written a number of books on the military dimension of the Spanish Civil War, and in particular, the International Brigade. I spoke to him about what motivated these individuals to volunteer for the Republican side and endure and fight in that conflict. He spoke to me, he spoke to me from his home in southwest England. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the International Brigades and the Spanish Civil War? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, Tom. Um, I am a history teacher by profession. Um, and during my university studies um, a little while back um, at the University of Leeds, I specialised in the Spanish Civil War. And it was a topic that, you know, when I left university, I didn't want to leave behind. And I continued to research and read as widely as possible and um, focus in on the military history side, which is something that, you know, hasn't really in the English language been thought about as much before. In the last few years, there's been some really great writing about it. But previously, I think a lot of kind of people who've studied the Spanish Civil War are more kind of interested in the politics or the kind of social aspects, cultural aspects. So that's really the, the niche that I've tried to fill is looking at the Spanish Civil War, the international brigades with a, with a military history hat on. And uh, actually also I, I co-host a podcast, Histories Most, we cover a huge variety of historical topics, not least the Spanish Civil War. Um, and you can find it on all podcast providers and uh, our Twitter and Facebook if you just search for Histories Most. So, in that context, could you briefly tell us what the Spanish Civil War was? What was it about and its broad course? It was, you know, a conflict, um, obviously many years in the making and probably, you know, we could do a whole podcast on why it happened. But more or less, it breaks out in the summer of 1936 because Spain has become divided into two camps. Um, you have the government um which is a, well, it's a moderate left government, but it's supported by a wide variety of uh, left-wing groups stretching from anarchists and communists through to kind of more traditional liberals and social democrats. Um, and their project is fundamentally opposed by the kind of conservative reactionary forces in Spain, whether it be the landowners, the church, the military. Um, so it's, it's essentially an ideological clash um, between almost progress and reaction. Um, and in the summer of 1936, the military stages a coup to try and oust the left-wing government, but the coup fails, or it only succeeds in, you know, the parts of the country that are probably conservative supporting anyway. Um, and that means the, the, the situation is that the country is divided into two armed camps because you've got the military rebels and you've got a portion of the military a uh, portion of the security forces that don't rebel and the arms that the government controls are distributed to workers, militias and peasants militias. And so what might have been uh, a short coup or an uprising that's put down turns into a long and bloody civil war. Um, you get famously foreign intervention 
Soviet Union eventually decides to support the Republic. Um, and very quickly, uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany decide to support um, the nationalists, Francoists, rebels, call them what you want. There is about as many names as you can think of for those ones. But more or less, you get Spain divided into the Francoist or rebel side and the Republican um, or loyalist side. And the war lasts um, nearly going on for three years, from July 1936 through to March, April 1939. It's pretty much one-way traffic in terms of rebel successes, um, resulting eventually in Franco's triumph, and he would rule Spain for almost 40 years after that. So within that context, um, a number of international brigades or, or units that become known as international brigades, what exactly were there and how many volunteers formed their ranks and what sort of countries did they originate from? It's probably, isn't it, the most um, famous or well-known aspect of the civil war, I think, the international brigades. Um, of course, you know, there's many civil wars where there's foreign volunteers, but these ones kind of stick out, I think, um, for the kind of scale, for the reputation that, that comes with them. Um, but the international brigades were originally set up in the autumn of 1936 by the and the communist international based in Moscow. Thinking being that uh, the civil war in Spain had quickly become a kind of clarion call for the world left. And there had already been a large number of, well, probably in the low thousands, volunteers making their way to Spain of their own accord. Um, and really, it was this chance to kind of capture the zeitgeist of, of well, we will take the lead in this, um, this, this anti-fascist struggle. We will make ourselves the champions of uh, the Spanish Republican cause. And originally, the Comintern thought they might recruit about 5,000 volunteers. It ended up being certainly over 32,000, um, which is obviously, you know, a, quite a remarkable number. It's a particularly remarkable number when you consider that probably only 150,000 Spaniards volunteered to fight for the Republic, and yet 32,000 foreigners did as well. Um, so the international brigades, um, once they were you know, created, they attracted people from um, mostly from continental Europe. Um, probably about 10,000 volunteers were from France and uh, Belgium, around about 5,000 from Germany and Austria, slightly lower from Italy. Um, again, maybe kind of 5,000 from Poland. But there was also about 2,500 from Britain and Ireland, um, pushing maybe 3,000 from North America. And I think uh, the figure often quoted is about 52 countries represented. So it is a, is a genuinely kind of international force. So what was the motivation for these individuals to travel to Spain, enlist with the Republican forces and serve um, as part of their army? Well, I think like any kind of big life decision that any of us make, there's lots of factors at play, isn't there? Um, there's lots of reasons that people make as, as drastic a decision as that. Uh, uh, but I think the overarching one, if you were to kind of nail it down to one reason or set of reasons, would be ideological um, you had this feeling at the time, a very strong feeling at the time in public opinion, particularly on the left, that all the kind of great debates of the age, you know, the 1930s, democracy or dictatorship, revolution or, or kind of reaction, socialism, fascism, 
that this was all kind of being played, literally played out in combat on Spanish soil. Um, and, and this feeling, and it, um, I think, pervaded the people who did volunteer for decades after that, you know, had the Republic won, fascism would have been stopped in its tracks. Because you've got to remember that, you know, 1936, it's just off the back of German rearmament, reoccupation of the Rhineland, and the, in, in particular, I think overlooked now, but very shocking at the time, the Italian conquest of Abyssinia. And it just seemed like fascism was on the march, um, that no one was doing anything to stop them. And I think that feeling that something must be done um, is what motivated an awful lot of volunteers. Um, if I may, I, I would like to quote a letter by um, someone called James Lardner, who was an American volunteer, young young man. And uh, he wrote a letter to his mother after he'd gone to explain why he was going. And it kind of sums up for me, I think, the multifaceted nature of people's kind of decision-making. So he writes, um, because I believe that fascism is wrong and must be exterminated and that liberal democracy or more probably communism is right, because my joining the IB might have an effect on the amendment of the Neutrality Act in the United States, because after the war is over, I shall be a more effective anti-fascist, because in my ambitious quest for knowledge in all fields, I cannot afford in this age to overlook war, because I am mentally lazy and should like to do some physical work for a change, because I need something remarkable in my background to make up for an unfortunate self-consciousness in social relations. Um, so there's everything there, isn't there? There's anti-fascism, there's uh, belief in communism, there's just wanting to have a story to tell, I think, wanting to have anecdotes, um, the adventurism almost of a, of a young man. Um, and you've got to also remember that um, a very significant number of these volunteers, Germans, Italians, Poles, uh, Austrians, whose countries were right-wing dictatorships, and they were often exiles living in Paris or Prague, living a pretty hopeless existence. You know, what hope did they have of overthrowing Mussolini or Hitler? Well, you could go to Spain and actually fight Mussolini or Hitler indirectly, perhaps, but I think that was a, a great motivation as well. And did you find in your research that an individual's motivation was shaped by their sort of social class, occupation, gender, nationality, or political or ideological allegiances? Well, absolutely. Um, the International Brigades were, as I've said, a communist organised force, um, and certainly the majority of volunteers were communists. Um, you know, the communist parties at each country was actually providing the logistical means to get a volunteer to Spain. So many volunteers, you know, there are about 80% working class, contrary to the image of Orwell or Hemingway, who didn't actually serve in the brigades, but they might not have a passport. They might not have the money to get there. So, um, you know, probably roughly three quarters, I would say, of the volunteers at various country to country would be uh, communists for whom it's an absolutely... You know, it's an, an ideological commitment. Uh, another interesting facet, actually, in terms of the individual's background, about 20% of the volunteers, we think, were Jewish, um, for whom, obviously, you know, the fight against fascism had a very pertinent um, place. Uh, you've also got, I think, what plays a role is geography as well. If you are... Um, an Italian or German exile living in Paris, it's both easy to get to Spain and you don't really have much motivation to stay in Paris, eking out existence as, a, as an asylum seeker. Whereas if you're in the United States, it's a massive undertaking in the 1930s to come to Europe. So I think 
if you know volunteers coming from say neighboring france whether they be french or or others probably the amount of ideological commitment there is probably lower than say an american volunteer who you know is taking a huge a huge journey and the the americans did have a reputation in spain for being kind of very serious very earnest communists you know very um very kind of um puritanical and probably that reflects i think the the level of commitment required so let's turn to the the conflict itself and the service of the inter- international brigades during the war could you give us a rough outline how how many units actually were part of the spanish republican forces yeah so you had um uh, seven international brigades created um each of them varying but would be between about two and a half thousand and three thousand men you would never have at any one time more than about fifteen thousand international brigade volunteers in spain um obviously I, i've said over thirty two thousand in total but there's quite a high turnover each brigade would be made up of between four and six battalions um there was also um for a time a rather ill-fated international tank regiment um but they were they were important troops but it's it's important not to overstate their size you know the republican army would by the the kind of second half of the war be well over 800,000 so this is a very small minority of the republican troops nevertheless as i think we'll talk about um in a way the numbers is not so as important as the way they were used um I know you are familiar with, obviously, the First World War, and you think about the way the Canadian and Australian Corps were used um, on the Western Front. That would, I think, roughly compare with how the International Brigades were used. Um, They are used for difficult jobs. Um, They are recognised as being, you know, shock troops. So I think their, their numbers is actually not as significant as actually their so just turning to the, the conflict itself, what engagements did the international brigades fight in during the, the Civil War? I mean, you could pretty much go through every major engagement from the autumn-winter of 1936 onwards. Um, most notably, I would talk about probably the defence of Madrid in late 1936 was really, well, it was a kind of first action and it was also in many ways the kind of high point um, because it was a very famous battle. It was kind of the leading international news story of the time, the siege of Madrid. But then over the course of 1937, the Republic goes on a number of offensives, Brunetta, Belchite, Teruel, um, and particularly in the first two, the international brigades are used as kind of tip of the spear troops. And similarly, again, you know, huge battles in 1938 in the Aragon, the Battle of the Ebro as well, and whether it is holding important points in the line or whether it's kind of spearheading attacks, they're kind of used again and again and again. So let's turn to their motivation to fight. I'm thinking, I mean, what we could do is, so for instance, if we define morale as a, the will to fight for the end points of the Republican government, what factors kept them going in battle once they were in Spain and serving in the, in the ranks of the Republican army? Well, first and foremost, it's got to be... Um, the ideological commitment I've talked about before, um, the fact that these are volunteers, the fact that obviously to volunteer to fight in another person's civil war means you've got obviously an intrinsically high level of motivation for the most part. The fact that it's often, I think, not recognised, um, but it is a simple fact that overwhelmingly this is a 
conscript war. Uh, both sides' armies are overwhelmingly made up of conscripts, and obviously conscription in a civil war is quite problematic. Um, I've read accounts, I've read a diary of a, of a, a Catalan conscript who was a Catholic conservative, but he's in the Republican army, vagaries of geography. So he, uh, you know, when, when his unit's ordered to go over the top, he hides. Um, so the difference between that and an international brigade is the international volunteers have volunteered to be there and a large number of them want to fight. And I think that, you know, being willing to, being willing to fight and die is what makes the difference. Um, you, you, you've got to, um, I think, also look at the fact that so many of these volunteers are highly motivated because they are, as one um, brigader actually put it himself, commissar material. So they are activists, you know, they're political activists, trade union activists back home. Um, and you know, whether or not that equips them with the military skills, it certainly equips them with the ideological belief in the cause and the ability also to kind of motivate men. Um, undoubtedly, though, um, it's not just ideology. And I think, you know, um, the historian Richard Baxell, who's written very well on the British uh, volunteers, really emphasizes that kind of um, fighting for your mates, you know, the peer group unit cohesion, because at the end of the day, um, you know, often I think you find when troops actually get into battle and become experienced, sometimes that ideology or the cause you're fighting for kind of goes to the background, doesn't it? And really you're kind of fighting for the person next to you. There was also a really conscious attempt by the brigades to keep up motivation uh, through the system of commissars. So each unit from uh, company size upwards has its own commissar. And those would be, you know, um, common turn appointees. They would be reliable communist activists. And their role, I've seen it described in a few different ways. There was a very interesting passage from a, a volunteer who, who wasn't a communist and he was actually very scathing about serving in the brigades for a large part, Jason Gurney. Um, but he said that the role of the commissar was very much like a chaplain in a regular army. It was a pastoral role. It was about being a buffer between the officers and the men, being someone to grumble at, uh, someone responsible for the welfare of the troops, um, the motivation of the troops, the morale of the troops. And I think what I would say with the commissars is you can tell when there was a bad one. If there's one who's a real kind of communist Puritan disciplinarian, morale you know falls quite quickly whereas when you had um you know in 1938 for example the british battalion commander was a guy called sam wilde and he had a great partnership with the commissar of the battalion um a scotsman called bob cooney and they i think really through almost personal bravery won the respect of the men and became really popular among the ranks so it could kind of go one or two ways a really effective and popular commissar i think really had a great relationship with the men but ones who kind of took their their um ideology more seriously or, or put that at the front and center tended not to do so well and did the commissars and sort of the commentary and republican forces actually depend on sort of coercive measures to maintain morale i'm thinking about sort of formal court martials executions and punishments like that yeah that's a really um actually been quite a fractious a uh, controversial question in the historiography of the international brigades. Um, you've kind of had um, kind of extremes in the historiography. 
um, with some people kind of going as far as saying that, you know, the International Brigade volunteers were like heroic victims of Stalinism, um, subjected to, you know, totalitarianism, both on on the front and, and off it. I think you've got a few issues to unpick there. Um, we might come in a moment perhaps to why there might have been demoralization. Um, but you've got, got a few problems in terms of, of, of how you deal with it. Um, there was definitely desertion um, at times on a really large scale. And with that comes punishments. Um, to give you an example, you had at the Battle of Brunetta, which was one of the biggest Republican offensives of the war, started quite well, but as all Republican offensives end up being, it grinds to a halt and then there's a nationalist counterattack and it all falls apart. And they suffered extremely heavy casualties, the Republicans overall, but particularly the, the kind of shock troops like the International Brigades. And after that battle, you had a real morale crisis. Um, you know, you had uh, the British battalion, for example, at the end of that battle, at roll call, there were 42 men from a battalion left. So it kind of goes without saying there's going to be demoralization and there was a huge fallout amongst the leadership of the British battalion. Um, one of them accused the brigade commander of not being fit to lead a troop of brownies. Um, you had the 13th International Brigade, which was a real hodgepodge of nationalities, was mutinied and was dissolved. Um, you had um, the Italian commander totally fell out with the leadership, said, we've done our part, we should be allowed to go home. Um, he ends up basically leaving Spain. Um, and the, the main International Brigade base at a town called Albacete was um, in the weeks following the battle flooded with deserters. And they had to set up, um, well, the, post-1945, this term has, a, has a, uh, a connotation, but they set up a concentration camp in the sense of a camp to concentrate all the deserters. Um, but 80% of them were back on the front line within three to four weeks. So you had this process um, of punishment for desertion. Usually it would be a spell in a, you know, a labor camp or a labor battalion. Serial deserters, um, some of them certainly were executed, as were people for kind of crimes, um, say, against civili the civilian population. But I think that has been overstated. Um, you know, you had some historians claiming several thousand, um, certainly numbers around 500 volunteers being executed. Uh, again, Richard Baxell, I mentioned again, as uh, you know, in conversation with him, he said to me, well, where are the bodies? You know, we've not found any evidence of, of kind of mass executions or, or people being killed on a large scale. Certainly, we know of the British volunteers, which I've, I've mentioned is about two and a half thousand. We know of two people executed, one of them who was going to cross the lines with some with the unit's positions and one of them who got drunk and fired his machine gun onto his own comrades. So pretty serious offences. Um, if, I, if I may, I've got um, a report sent back to Moscow on desertion in the winter of 37, which was a pretty low point morale-wise. Um, now, interestingly, the desertion problem, and, and we'll maybe get onto the, the makeup of the brigades, seems to have been much worse amongst the Spanish members of the International Brigades because Spaniards were increasingly filled, filled the ranks were filled up with, with Spanish recruits because there wasn't enough foreign volunteers arriving. 
And the reasons given for uh, three cases that were, that, were, that were put in this report for desertion were a soldier going home to get married and 15 days returning. He was docked a month's pay and demoted to a private. Uh, a soldier who um, basically said he couldn't take it any longer and uh, he was demoted to a private and given 15 days in a penal battalion. And a soldier who got a 10-day leave um, but extended it by 12 days because of wife's sickness um, was demoted to private and given two weeks in the penal unit. So I would say these are pretty normal kind of um, things to happen in a military unit. And I think one of the things that has happened with international brigade history is because the historians of the international brigades are not military historians, problems like desertion, grumbling, complaining, which drinking, which are all pretty normal things, I would say, in militaries through time, get turned into, oh, well, something must have been terribly wrong. There must have been some political fallout. There must have been massive ideological, um, you know, dissatisfaction or dis, uh, disillusionment. And yes, certainly there were issues. Um, but I, I tend to look at it as more, you know, these are kind of typical things that happen to soldiers and units, particularly units that get worn down. One thing I was I was quite interested in was, um, you know, obviously some of the international brigades are structured along sort of national representation. So I was wondering yeah. whether the, the, the I suppose, the, the shared experience of those individuals in, say, national, for instance, the British Battalion, many of those individuals would have served during the First World War, and whether that sort of collective experience, maybe sort of national ideas of social norms, cultural mores, etc., shape the way they function so you get very different types of morale and organization and shared understanding of what that means because you have national entities in, in within units. And obviously that breaks down once you get uh, Spanish volunteers coming in. But does that shape morale at all and motivation? 100%, I would think, yeah. Um, obviously, at first, the units were on, as you say, national lines. Um, and that really shapes, I think, the character to some extent of the units. As I, as I said, we've only got two records of... Um, two definite cases of British pe- British being executed. And that's probably lower than other national groups. And it probably has something to do with the fact, you know, that it was the culture in the British battalion that they didn't really shoot people. Um, equally, I think um, maybe it was a little bit different with, say, the French, um, thinking about their First World War experience. I also would totally agree about the kind of way that military discipline and morale was kind of managed was very much tied in with the national culture. So I think it was handled quite differently with the Germans, for instance, um, than with the British. You also got a lot of kind of disparaging comments from other nationalities about the British uh, ill discipline, particularly around drinking. The British battalion had a reputation being very hard drinking and other nationalities, particularly the Americans, really looked down at that and thought that this was, you know, evidence of of total kind of breakdown and morale, of ill discipline, of, you know, communists often in this era explained these problems as being Trotskyism. Nothing to do with Trotsky. Um, I think people totally misread it and historians go along and think, oh, well, the ideological disillusionment. I think they just thought any problem, oh, well, it's, it's Trotskyism, isn't it? It's clear evidence of Trotskyism. But I would say the British, you know, I think I, I wanted actually to ask you here. I think probably the military culture and maybe just general culture of the British might factor in why there's 
alcohol. And I don't necessarily see that as necessarily evidence of terrible discipline. Well, I think, you know, I think you're right in two things. I think, you know, if it's for predominantly working class volunteers, they're going to represent the industrial backgrounds. We certainly get that in the First World War. Miners, for instance, withdrawn their labour, leaving camps in 1914 because of the conditions. And they unionised, they're organised. And these individuals would have come from a trade union background. So they would have seen trade union uh, remedies to it, to problems in that way. And, and you certainly get that in the British Army. And the Americans is interesting because they, they've just had prohibition for 12 years. Yeah. So many of them are, have maybe have grown up with prohibition and, and linking drinking to organised crime and, and some of the seedier aspects of capitalism. So I think that, that's, you know, I'm sure you're right in that sense. And that would be my assumption. Again, it, it'd be a great study to do, to look at those in very much... Yeah as microcosms or their national entity. The other issue I was really interested in was female fighters and the motivation of uh, women who came to Spain and joined up. Did you find that they generally reflected their male counterparts or did they have any sort of unique experience uh, sort of based on their on their own perspectives? So female fighters in Spanish Civil War is a tricky one. Where you had it, and it was always in, in fairly small numbers, it was in the first few months of the war in the militias that were created um, by various political organizations that supported the Republican side. And as the Republic went through uh, what was called the militarization process of, of turning those militias into proper a proper organized army, you, you, they basically banned women from combat roles. Um, now, in terms of foreign volunteers, there was not uh, international brigade combat uh, troops who were female. When they were first recruited, you could only actually join the international brigades if you had prior military experience. Um, and although that re- requirement was dropped fairly quickly for reasons of you know numbers, they needed people. Um, you didn't have uh, female um, international brigade soldiers. You did have a fair amount of um, people who came over as volunteers in the international brigades um, as uh, medics and nurses and things like this. In terms of the motivations behind going, I would, I would suggest for those people very similar. Um, you know, it's, it's this great uh, clarion call um, and wanting to do your part, even if it isn't a, a combat role, was, it was a huge factor. Um, there was, that I know of, one British woman who fought called Felicia Brown, who was a sculptor. Um, This was really the first couple of weeks of the war before, say, the International Brigades were established, and she was killed. Um, But I I wouldn't, I can't say that I know enough about her personal situation as to to comment on that. No, the reason I was interested, obviously, the Soviet Red Army during the Second World War had uh, women in in frontline roles across the the army, and so you know it's just that sort of interesting thing. If the common term was interested in that, whether that would be an ideological facet of the way they would seek to organise military forces, but obviously maybe not in this case. There is a, a kind of irony that, that some historians have pointed out that you know the way the Republic pulled back women's roles after a few months shows that even that was too radical for their kind of political <laughs> agenda. And the final point, Alex, is where can people learn more about your work and also your books on the Spanish Civil War? Well, um, I have written a couple of books on the Spanish Civil War. I've written a military history of the international brigades called Fighting for Spain. Um, and I've written a more kind of um, general overview on the military history of the Republican side um, called The People's Army in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, 
I um, co-host as well a podcast called History's Most. We've covered all sorts of topics, not just uh, the Spanish Civil War, but um, there is a, a Twitter account for that um, podcast at History's Most, which uh, would be probably where you would you would find me online. Oh, Alex, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me.